Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is the podcast where TLDR does not apply and the study of history is a way of life. Welcome back to it. This is uh, this is something different than we've been doing the last few weeks, isn't it? Actually, two new episodes in the same week, That's uh, or within a week's time period, I guess. Uh, last episode that I recorded was going to dropped on uh, Thursday, and this one's going to drop on Monday. So, uh, fantastic. I'm finally getting back into the swing of things. However, this isn't going to be a long-form podcast, unfortunately. I am going to read a letter to you, though, but it's not going to be long, like the, you know, it's not going to be an hour, like the typical podcast on Mondays would be. I'm still very much behind in my schedule. Frankly speaking, it's a borderline miracle that I was actually able to record this episode. You ever have one of those periods in your life where you just feel like you're working almost every single day of the week? Or, in fact, every single day of the week. That's that's the way the last month of my life has been. And so, uh, yeah, I've been basically working every day in one form or another. Not at a job, necessarily, but on other things, too. And it's it's pretty much been an all-day event every day for a while now. And that's finally starting to ease up a little bit. Thank goodness. So I'll be able to get back into the podcast a little bit more as the weeks go on. It's going to be slow going here at first as we uh, begin the month of May. But uh, it's going to slowly pick up some speed. So once again, for all you folks who have been uh, bearing with me uh, this uh, during this period of time when I'm not cranking out the episodes like I used to, I, I certainly appreciate your patience, and I, uh, I'm glad you're still here with us on the uh, study group for the Founding Fathers. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to pull a letter here. Actually, this is a diary entry from a Mr. John Adams. We've heard a lot from John Adams recently, and that's not going to end anytime soon. We'll hear from some others, too. But Mr. Adams has a lot to say. He's a uh, he's going to be a probably one of the more frequent guests on the podcast just because of his uh, depth of knowledge, the amount of writing that he did, the letters that we have available, and the books that we have available from him. And honestly, I'm glad for that. I like uh, I like reading Mr. Adams' writings, and I really enjoy having him as a guest on the podcast. So without further delay, let's get into this diary entry. This is a diary entry from September the 5th, 1774, and this is actually largely kicking off his time in the General Congress as Congress was beginning to meet in 1774. And there's an excerpt from this diary entry that I found very interesting. Uh, Now, most Americans would not find this very interesting. Most Americans would fall asleep somewhere between the first and second paragraph, but that's okay. We're a little bit different from those Americans, so uh, those of us who who enjoy this kind of stuff, these are the things that... uh, get our minds uh, spinning, I guess, in the morning. This, Like I said, this is a podcast where TLDR does not apply. Uh, most Americans would consider this TLDR. But then again, most Americans would consider just about anything that doesn't fit in a fortune cookie TLDR. Anywho, let's, uh, let's get into this letter. Quote, Mr. Henry then arose and said, This was the first general Congress which had ever happened, that no former Congress could be a precedent, that we should have occasion for more general Congresses, and therefore that a precedent ought to be established now, that it would be a great injustice if a little colony should have the same weight in councils of America as a great one. And therefore he was for a committee. Major Sullivan observed that a little colony had its all at stake, as well as a great one. This is a question of great importance. 
If we vote by colonies, this method will be liable to great inequality and injustice, for five small colonies with 100,000 people in each may outvote four large ones, each of which has 500,000 inhabitants. If we vote by the poll, some colonies have more than their proportion of members, and others have less. If we vote by interests, it will be attended with insuperable difficulties. To ascertain the true importance of each colony, is the weight of a colony to be ascertained by the number of inhabitants merely, or by the amount of their trade, the quantity of their exports and imports, or by a compound ratio of both? This will lead us into such a field of controversy as will greatly perplex us. Besides, I question whether it is possible to ascertain at this time the numbers of our people or the value of our trade. It will not do in such a case to take each other's words. It ought to be ascertained by authentic evidence from records. End quote. Wow. It's kind of a lengthy quote. Now, some of you folks out there, the, the wheels have begun turning, and you're thinking to yourself, this sounds familiar to me. I know exactly what this sounds like, and you're, you're right, this is very familiar to anybody who understands the Constitution and how our current form of government works. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about representation. How should a state, or in this case a colony, be represented in the General Congress? Should each state or each colony have a single vote? How should those votes be apportioned among the states? By the size of the state, by population, by economy, etc., etc. This is what they're talking about. Now, for those of you educated enough about the Constitution, you'll understand that this was a great debate in the Constitutional Convention as well. And it's how we ended up with uh, the two houses of Congress that we have and exactly how they are set up. As we've talked about before, the United States House of Representatives is based upon population of the several states. 435 representatives in the, in, the, in the House of Representatives. And obviously the bigger states have more votes. So a small state, like Iowa, relatively small, I forget how many electoral votes, it's either six or seven, I believe, is quite a bit smaller than, say, uh, California, uh, with, I believe it was 50-plus electoral votes. I, I forget exactly. Again, I haven't looked at that electoral college map in a long time. And these things have changed somewhat over the years because populations shift over time. But you get the idea. So the House of Representatives is very much decided by population. Now, obviously this can create quite a conundrum. And the reason for that is you can end up, like, especially in a union of like 13 colonies, 13 states, even in 50 states, you know, you could end up with like three or four states or three or four colonies that have the vast majority of the population, and they just run the show. And the little states have absolutely zero say in anything that happens. Right? You see how that works? That's a problem. Because what is the point of, of being in the union if you have no say? If the big states can just ride roughshod over everything, there is no point. And frankly speaking, in a situation like that, the smaller states might as well secede from the union. And I would totally support that, by the way. Oh my gosh, Roman! Did you, did, did you hear Roman? He just said that smaller states should secede from the union. Yep, that's exactly what I just said. But only in that circumstance, and a few other circumstances. In a circumstance where, like, say, all we had was a single House legislature, and all we had was a House of Representatives, where five, six, maybe ten large states could just run the show, and just walk all over the smaller states and have no say. That They basically would just have no voice. Or not a voice that would matter, anyway. 
then yes, I would totally support secession from the union because there's no point in being in a union if you have no say. Now, good news! The Founding Fathers were brilliant men. And they fought this battle in the General Congress in 1774. They fought, this is when the wheels really started to get turning about this. So in 1774, John Adams, in his diary entry, he's talking about exactly the same thing. They're talking about how in the world are we going to vote? Are we going to vote proportionally? Are we going to do this, that, and the other thing? The population and all oh, the economy, blah, trade, and so on and so forth. They're trying to figure it out. They're starting to work it out. They're starting to see what, what, what a problem that's going to need to be solved in the future. And they're talking about setting a precedent. Yes, indeed. So the Founding Fathers in the Constitution, they created what? What did they create to balance this thing out so that the big states did not just rule the show like some kind of a tyranny? Some kind of tyranny by committee is what I would call that, by the way. Uh, a tyranny by committee can be a lot of things, but it could, it could be like, uh, oh, I don't know. I'm just get, I'm just throwing this out here as an example. Uh, Supreme Court, for example, uh, nine people making decisions, or more specifically, five people making decisions. That could be a that could be a tyranny by committee. But you could also have a tyranny by committee if you just had a relatively few states just running the show. So the founding fathers, in their infinite wisdom, it would seem, created the United States Senate. And if you understand how the Senate works, there's 100 senators. Obviously, there's two senators per state, 50 states times two, 100. So each state gets two votes in the Senate. That's that's fair and equal. And what that does is it creates a little bit of a firewall in between those big states in the House of Representatives bullying around and pushing around the smaller states. Because, and again, going back to the example of Iowa and California, Iowa is a very small state compared to California, geographically and by population as well. And California could just beat Iowa over the head with a baseball bat in the House of Representatives. But in the Senate, it don't work that way. Iowa has two votes. California has two votes. You see how that works? Brilliant. Genius. Problem solved. And that's just one of about 200 different problems the Founding Fathers solved with the Constitution, amongst other things. The state constitutions. And what a great problem to solve, because it's very necessary to solve that problem. If you don't solve that problem, you don't have a country that works. Like I said, even I, a great supporter of the Union would support the smaller states leaving if they didn't have a say in the Union. And if there was not a Senate, they would not have a say. And that's a problem. You can't have that. The Founding Fathers knew it, and so they, they came up with that, uh, that system. And again, this diary entry from 1774, this is quite a ways before the Constitution was really thought about. Okay, it's more than a decade before the Constitution really became a thing. But they were already talking about it. They were already trying to figure out how this thing was going to work. How was this union going to work? Even before they really could conceive of a union. They were they gathered together in general Congress, and they were working this stuff out. Isn't that amazing, really? I mean, you don't, this stuff is pretty deep. It's not, again, this is why I say that these letters are the instruction manual to the Constitution of the United States. I've never heard anybody else say that before, by the way. And, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back for having this great epiphany. I'm just trying to explain how rare it is for people to conceive of how important these letters really are. They are, essentially, the only instruction manual that we have for the Constitution. Some people limit themselves to the Federalist Papers, and frankly speaking, that's, that's a mistake. That would be like limiting your knowledge of a car to the, to the instruction manual that came with the car. Now, the instruction manual that comes with your car, assuming it even comes with one nowadays, it does have a lot of really useful information in there. You know, how do, what, what weight of motor oil do you need to use? How is, how is the car set up? You get the idea, but it doesn't tell you how to take down that engine, does it? No, it doesn't. 
it doesn't tell you, you know, in, in really good detail how that how that engine actually functions and how some of the other systems actually function as well. It tells you a little bit, but I find it necessary if I'm gonna if I'm gonna pop the hood on a car and I'm gonna turn a wrench on that car, I'm gonna want a little bit more than the manual that came with the car. I'm gonna want to go into the pictures and diagrams and things of this nature that usually accompany some kind of a comprehensive repair manual or guide that tell you how to take down the engine or various parts of the car. These letters are basically that, in a sense. It may not be the best analogy in the world, but you get the idea. You can't limit yourself to the Federalist Papers and say you know everything about the Constitution because you don't. Because I've heard, I don't know how many people say, oh, just read the Federalist Papers. It'll tell you exactly about the Constitution, blah, 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 blah. No, not really. I mean, it's going to tell you something. It's going to be informative. Don't get me wrong. But again, a lot of those Federalist Papers were basically a marketing campaign. And they were also, they weren't really... (laughs) They really weren't written for the common man, in my humble opinion. They, I mean, they were, to, in some regard and in other regards, not. And they're very limited. They're very limited in what they actually talk about. When you go back into the letters, you, you start to figure out just how, just how long ago the Founding Fathers were debating issues just like this. And like I said, how far back does the argument of a well-regulated militia go, and what does it mean? There are some Federalist papers that talk about it, but you get a little bit more comprehensive view if you go into the letters. Quite a bit more comprehensive of you, actually, and from several of the Founding Fathers. I mean, I think there were three authors of the Federalist papers, if I recall. I think it was Hamilton, Madison, and Jay. And... There's a lot more people out there to consult than just them. George Washington, where's he at? Well, he's in the letters, and we've talked a lot about him. Adams, where's he at? Well, he's in the letters here, and his diary, by the way. So you can cast a lot wider net by going into the letters. The letters are very valuable. So keep that in mind, and keep in mind, you know, this thing about the Senate and the House of Representatives and how how representation is set up in the United States, it wasn't thought up on a whim at the last minute during the Constitutional Convention. This had been rattling around in people's heads for a long time. And they were thinking about this going all the way back to the General Congress in the colonies. And, you know, this kind of dovetails with another issue, and that is the Electoral College, which is very similar, by the way. This is a very similar argument. People ask themselves, you know, why is it that we don't have a popular vote for president in the United States? There's two answers to that question. Number one, the Founding Fathers were not stupid. And number two... This is not a democracy. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. This podcast is where democracy goes to die, because democracy should die. Oh my gosh, did did you just hear, oh my, did Roman just say that democracy deserves to die? Yep, that's exactly what I just said. At least on a national level, as far as a republic is concerned, you know, in the union. Now, are there some forums where democracy is fine? Sure. But on a national stage, when it comes to governing a union of several states, absolutely not. Uh, Democracy has absolutely no business in that kind of forum. As a matter of fact, it should be stamped out everywhere you see it. On that forum, on that stage. Now, in other forums, on other stages, fine. Knock yourself out. And I can give you some examples. I'm not going to dive off into the weeds on that. But... This country is not a democracy. If it were a democracy, we would have public, excuse me, popular vote of the president of the United States, and this country would suck rocks. And I would probably want, I'd I'd be rather uh, upset at at the nature of the country if that were the case. Because again, the founding fathers were smart enough to know that that was a stupid idea. And let me tell you why. For the same reason that having just a House of Representatives, a single house in Congress, was a stupid idea. And that's why the Founding Fathers didn't do it. They knew that you had to have some kind of a firewall between the big states and and that th- their propensity to want to run a tyranny over the smaller states. A tyranny by committee, as I call it. And the Electoral College is one of those firewalls. 
It keeps the big states, with all of the population, from overwhelming the smaller states to the point where they have absolutely no say in who is going to be commander-in-chief and president of the Union. You can't have that. And if the Electoral College was ever abolished for any reason, which would be a stupid, self-destructive, suicide attempt by the United States of America, I would be all for the smaller states just leaving the Union. Because there would be absolutely no point in staying anymore. And yes, I just said that. There would be no point in staying. Because again, the Constitution never would have been ratified if there was no Electoral College. Did you ever think about that? It would never have been ratified. The smaller states in, in the Union at the time never, ever would have been stupid enough to blow their, to put a bullet in their own head by voting for a constitution that had a popular election for president of the United States. And that's what that would be. It would be a suicide. It would be a suicide of the smaller states. I hate to paint such a blunt picture for you, but that's exactly what it would be. Because somebody has to say it, and who else is going to say this except for me? I, don't, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. But you get these uh, uneducated people who pop up every once in a while who don't know how to read books, and to whom TLDR is a way of life, and they say, well, we need, we need popular election of the president of the United States because that's the only thing that's fair, really. What about those smaller states? Don't you think they should have a say in who represents them, or do you just want to leave it to the big cities and the big states? And by the way, the big cities are doing a bang-up job of running themselves, don't you think? So they should be the ones who pick the president. All those big cities with their high crime rate and everything else. Yeah, that, that sounds like a pretty stupid idea to me. And, and you know, the farmers out there in the, the middle of the country who grow all of the country's food. Oh, yeah, they should have no say in president of the United States. They should have zero say. That's brilliant. Brilliant, I say sarcastically. Uh, no, that's a pretty stupid idea. So here we are in the United States. A republic with our firewalls against this uh, popular rule. We have the Senate to protect the country, the smaller states, against the House of Representatives run amok, and we have the Electoral College for the same reason. Uh, you have to have a balance between those big states and the small states. Those big states always just, they always want to try to run the show, don't they? Tyranny by committee. And the smaller states really just, for the most part, want to be left alone. And they want to have some say in what lunatic is going to run the country next. You know, I mean, uh, one person's, uh, you know, one person's, you know, favored lunatic is not another person's favored lunatic. Everybody should get a say in which lunatic is going to run the country, including the smaller states. Especially now. Um, it's The Electoral College is more important now than it was in 1787. And let me tell you why. I've said it before and I'll say it again. This country likes to tear itself apart every four years when we elect a president to the United States. I'm pretty sure that is not what the Founding Fathers intended, by the way. I mean, if they wanted the country to darn near commit suicide every four years when it comes to electing the president of the United States, they probably would have thought about things a little bit differently. The president of the United States didn't have a lot of power back in the beginning. He just didn't. George Washington did not have a lot of power. He had some power, don't get me wrong. He was commander-in-chief of the military, as, as all presidents are. And, you know, he had, the, he had the usual war powers, and he had some, some governing authority in the executive branch. But by and large, his impact on the country was very minimal compared to the impact of the president of the United States on the country now. It was never intended for the president to have a big impact on the country. You cut the legs out from underneath that, that position, president of the United States— and people will stop really caring about who's president of the United States because he's going to be relatively inconsequential, except everywhere it matters, like national security, for example, and all these other things. The, the president was never expected to be mired down and stuck dealing with all of these domestic issues that they deal with. He really had a, an almost singular focus for national security, being commander-in-chief of the military, and a few other things. 
but he was never supposed to get stuck dealing with all of these domestic issues to the point where they, they he forgets, he or she forgets about the national security issues to the detriment of the country, making this country much more vulnerable to its enemies abroad, which is where we're at today. And mark my words, sometime in probably the not-too-distant future, this country is going to regret forcing the President of the United States to travel this path of focusing almost solely on domestic issues. That is a huge mistake, because while he is distracted with that, uh, the enemies abroad are hard at work. And believe me, the enemies abroad are much more focused on outside forces like the United States than we are focused on outside forces from here. So that electoral college system, again, is meant to give the smaller states some kind of a say in what goes on in that office of President of the United States so that the big cities don't just pick this guy every four years. Because, I mean, who are they going to pick? I mean, the big cities will end up picking a president who caters to them. The president will no longer then be at all accountable to the smaller states, to the small business, to the farmer, to the people in the middle of the country. He won't be accountable to them at all. And instead, everything will just be run from the big cities. Is that a good idea? I don't think so. I don't think that's sustainable. And I don't think that's good for the, the working people in the middle of the country. And for them to not feel disenfranchised to the point where they want to leave the union, you really have to make sure that the smaller states have a say. I mean, if you want to see, you know, a whole bunch of people just basically give up on the United States of America and just say, this ain't working anymore, yeah, just eliminate the Electoral College. That's a pretty quick way to do it. Because that's, that's, that's how you communicate to a wide swath of people that you don't matter anymore. We don't care about you. And that's a problem. And the Founding Fathers knew it. So again, take these letters seriously. The thought process behind things like the Senate, the Electoral College, and other things goes back a long way. And this diary entry from John Adams was a very early, very early discussion about that same kind of thing. Uh, the wheels have, have been set in motion, ladies and gentlemen, in 1774 and 75. The United States is beginning to be formed up in the minds of people like John Adams. The Constitution is beginning to take form long before the Constitutional Convention. The United States has begun, and we're seeing it in these letters, in this diary entry especially. We are seeing the very beginning of the United States of America in the mind of John Adams and others. Uh, it's obviously others were thinking about it, too. Uh, like I said, we've read extensively on the Second Amendment, and Mr. Adams has also chimed in on the First Amendment. And we've read also a lot about the Third Amendment so far. Uh, all of these things have been discussed on this podcast so far, and we have not even left 1775, and we've already seen the Second Amendment talked about a lot. The Third Amendment talked about quite a bit, and the First Amendment talked about a little bit in the letters from George Washington and John Adams and others. The Constitution is beginning to take shape, ladies and gentlemen, and again, we haven't even left 1775. Isn't that interesting. I think it's interesting. Some people like to study the, you know, the Constitution and they like to stick around 1787 and that, that, that general time period. And I'm telling you, that's a mistake. You are limiting yourself quite a bit by sticking around just the Constitutional Convention and, and the, the time period immediately around that. Constitution is a longer story than that. And its origins have deep roots back in the 1770s and beyond, to be quite frank with you. Even beyond that. But I decided to start the, the mid-1770s for good reason. That's when a lot of the really good stuff began to happen. And we're going to continue that march. And I certainly thank you for joining me on this episode of the podcast and our discussion on this uh, this balance between small states and big states. How do you do that? 
How do you how do you create a situation where the small states don't overwhelm the big states in some unfair way and the big states don't overwhelm the small states in some unfair kind of way? It's a delicate balance. And the founding fathers did a good job. And we have this fantastic government in the United States of America today. We have a great Congress, potentially. I mean, it has great potential anyway. Some of the people who are there are absolute garbage. But we have a House of Representatives that represents the population of the United States of America. And that's fine. There's reasons for that. And we have a Senate that balances that out And the Senate is meant to represent the states, and we are going to have a much bigger conversation about that later on, ladies and gentlemen. And that is meant to serve as, uh, again, the firewall against uh, tyranny by committee. Uh, The big cities and the big states run it riding roughshod over the smaller ones. And thank goodness we have a United States Senate today. And I certainly hope that every single United States senator understands what their job is. Sometimes I believe that they forget about it. Because honestly, a United States senator is really no different than any ordinary American citizen. Their education on the Constitution, it's no different than your neighbors. It's no different than some kid in public school right now. It's no different. Their education is about the same. It's crap, mostly. And sometimes senators, even senators, forget what their job is. Either that or they simply don't care, one of the two. And, you know, reasonable people can disagree with me, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, I know there's some good senators up there on either side that do know what their job is, at the very least. They may have some skewed, weird weird political ideology, but at least they understand what the job of the Senate is. Uh, so at least there's that. Thank goodness there there are some uh, some folks up there that really do cling on to that um, that basic understanding. Something to something to be hopeful. And uh, I'm glad that we have that uh, that two house legislature that we have in the general Congress. It's fantastic, fantastic idea. It really was, and it was very well executed. I think not perfect. Nothing is perfect, by the way, but it was fairly well executed for what it was. So I hope that gives you some insight into the you know the the early thinking on what a uh, what a congress a general congress should look like in the mind of john adams i hope you'll join me on the next episode of the podcast i haven't the faintest clue if it's going to be an actual recorded podcast probably not it's probably going to be a best of because again my schedule is just a dumpster fire right now still but uh i'm slowly getting back into it uh this is the first letter we've actually read in several weeks i think probably about two three weeks or something like that we're getting there and uh, so look forward to that. I look forward to sharing more of the letters back uh, back up on the podcast here shortly. Uh, thank you for bearing with me again. And with all of that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you. <laughs>